So we are on about month nine in our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Nine months we've spent exploring this, the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind. And while we have learned and we've been encouraged by and we've been exhorted by the particulars of Christ's teaching on this day, when we spend that long in a text looking at the particulars, looking at the trees, we can lose focus on, if we're not careful, the total effect of the sermon as it would have been heard and brought to the hearts brought to bear on the hearts of those who were sitting there this day. We can lose the forest in our focus on the trees. And we need to know the trees as well as the forest. So the sermon itself, when you look at it as it's written in Matthew, if you were to take it up and read it out loud in its entirety, would probably take you about 20 minutes. Now, most likely, this isn't everything that Jesus had preached on this day, but in summary form, these are all of the subjects and the issues and the topics that Jesus brought forth for, um, for proclamation. So whether this was 20 minutes, 40 minutes, two hours, we don't know, but I want you to just pull back for a second and imagine that you're sitting there hearing this sermon on this day. Ask yourself, if you had been there as one of the crowds that were hearing everything Jesus was speaking, how do you think this sermon might have impacted you as you listened to it in its totality? How do you think that all of the subjects addressed by Jesus, all of the topics addressed by Jesus in such quick succession, as he revealed to all who were listening the righteous requirements of the Lord for any who would even begin to think that they could enter into the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness that will be exhibited by those who are actually citizens of the kingdom of heaven. As he proclaimed the moral compass that is evident in ever-increasing measure in the lives of those who truly love and serve and honor the king of the kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you think this sermon would have impacted you? Just imagine hearing what must have felt like a prolonged barrage of exhortations to the highest standard of moral righteousness. Like wave after wave upon the shores of your soul, upon the shores of your heart, upon the, sh the shores of your mind. Everyone within earshot just hearing the relentless drumbeat of righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. If they had been listening, if you have been listening, you can only imagine the sense of complete and total inadequacy that you must or might have felt listening on that day. How each and every one of us falls so short of God's perfect, righteous standard. And if you were sitting there that day, you might have asked yourself, what hope is there if this is the requirement, if this is the standard by which that we, that we need, if we were to be acceptable to God, what, what hope is there for me? But through it all, you need to remember that Jesus is preaching this sermon not to the crowds, specifically. The crowds are listening in. 
but he's preaching this sermon to the disciples who are seated before him. And so for all who love Jesus, which are what this sermon is about and, and the, the, the glory of the ask, seek, knock that we'll get to, it is an encouragement for us as we strive to live this life of righteousness. So for all who do love Jesus, for all who truly believe in Jesus, for all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, who devote themselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior, Jesus provides us with the most wonderful truth in this portion of Scripture we're looking at this morning. And that's this. Our Father in heaven loves to give good things to His children. He loves to encourage His disciples. And so... Jesus on this day does that very thing. He encourages the disciples. And at the same time, he inspires the crowds to believe. Jesus is heartening his disciples by urging them to call upon their generous father who always has an ear to listen to his children. Passionately ask him and keep asking him. Relentlessly seek Him and keep seeking Him. Persistently knock and keep knocking. And to grasp how we're going to, in order to grasp the wonder of this privilege of being able to ask and seek and knock, let's recap where we've been so far in the Gospel of Matthew. We are still actually quite early in the public ministry of our Lord. And at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had rebuffed the temptations brought against him by the devil in the wilderness. You remember, he spent 40 days uh, in the wilderness, trusting in the goodwill of his Father. And then after that time of testing, he came out and he began his public preaching ministry, starting it with these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he went about preaching, he called his first disciples to himself. The first disciples being Peter and Andrew, and then as he walked along the Sea of Galilee, he called two more, James and John. And it's these four disciples who are following him at the time when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And with these disciples following him, Jesus coupled his preaching with acts of compassion. Jesus went out to seek and to save the lost, and he did so by primarily, first and foremost, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but he buttressed that proclamation of the kingdom with healing, or by healing those who came to him as they suffered from a variety of pains, afflictions, and diseases. And in healing them, Jesus revealed a power never before known over every kind of suffering, over every kind of misery, over every kind of trouble, the healing ministry of of Jesus, the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ was unlike anything that the crowds had ever seen before. Stunned and thankful, the crowds watched as Jesus healed them, healed their mothers, healed their brothers, their sisters, their children, and their friends of debilitating diseases, pains, demonic oppressions, seizures, illnesses, and sometimes even paralysis. 
And as a result, the fame of Jesus Christ spread, quickly spread, far and wide. And people came to him from all around Galilee. They came from the Decapolis. They came from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. You see, the compassion of Jesus, the message of Jesus, his care and concern to alleviate the spiritual and the physical sufferings of the people caused them all to flock to him to hear his words. And as the crowds poured in to experience his healing power for themselves or for someone they loved, the question arises, we don't really know this rabbi yet. How would this relatively new and unknown, generally unknown rabbi respond to these incoming crowds? Later on in the gospel, Matthew will make the disposition of Jesus towards the crowd clear when he wrote this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the greatest way to show someone that they are loved, the most wonderful exhibition of compassion is not to heal them of their physical infirmities. See, sometimes in the modern church we get that mixed up. We think giving people a glass of water is the greatest way to heal them or the greatest way to care for them, but it's not. It is a way we care, but it's not the great way. It's not the primary way. Jesus reveals his love for the crowds. Jesus reveals his love for the disciples by teaching them the truth of God. He loves them and shows them his love for them by calling on them to leave behind their sin. Sin that entraps us. Sin that ensnares us. Sin that ultimately, if not for Jesus Christ, will kill us all both physically and spiritually, and turn to God instead. And so compassionate Jesus on this day, merciful Jesus on this day, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, notice this, his disciples came to him. At this point, that's the four disciples. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, meaning the disciples. And the crowds got to hear everything that Jesus was speaking. So again, clearly, to be clear, this, Jesus is specifically teaching and directing his words to this, the disciples, those who have already chosen to follow him. But the large crowds that are gathered around are given the blessing of hearing everything that Jesus is about to teach. And so what does Jesus preach and teach? Quite a lot. Listen to the waves upon waves of teaching and exhortation in just this short sermon from chapter 5 to where we are in chapter 7. Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. You remember that back in chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Now remember, the Beatitudes are are, are not, contrary to popular belief, Uh, describing eight separate groups of people who are blessed by the Lord because of their circumstance. No, the Beatitudes describe and reveal the characteristics that are present in and the blessings promised to one group of people, the citizens of the kingdom of God. So what are the the, uh, characteristics of those who truly love Jesus? The Beatitudes reveal them. First, you see that they are poor in spirit. 
Meaning, they are convinced of their own spiritual poverty before the Lord. Their pride is broken and they realize that they are helpless to save themselves. Their sin, our sin, is far too powerful over us and our ability to deal with it is far too small and so as a result of this recognition we turn to the Lord for salvation we turn to the Lord for grace for help for deliverance a deliverance that is freely and graciously offered to everyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus And Jesus promises that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he moves on. He says, along with this poverty of spirit comes a mourning. You see that? Blessed are those who mourn, meaning a grieve. They grieve over their sin. And far from doing what we tend to do in our own day with sin, I don't know if if you are like me, but there are times when I know what the right thing to do is, but rather than give it up, I fight for it. I try to justify it. At times we'll lash out at people in anger when they try to call us on it. But the citizen of the kingdom mourns over their sin. They want more than anything to be rid of it to be free from it. They lament deeply over and are anguished by the effects of their sin, the effects that sin has wrought in their own lives, the effects that sin has brought in their relationships with others. And most importantly, like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, they beat their breast over the fact that they have sinned first and foremost against God himself. And we cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The kingdom citizen mourns over their sin and the promise of God to the, to the kingdom citizen who mourns is that we will be comforted. Meekness is another characteristic of the kingdom citizen. Those who, while they have it in their power to act out against anyone who harms them, be it actively harming them or passively avoiding them. You see, we can, we can respond in both ways. We can actively um, harm them with words or with wicked deeds of violence or we could passively uh, respond by passing judgment or giving the silent treatment or any other number of responses. The meek are those who leave vengeance in the hand of the Lord and instead labor to ensure that they are not easily provoked to anger Labor to ensure that they refuse to hold on to resentment with another for any reason whatsoever. The meek commit their way to the Lord and so therefore die to such self-righteousness, die to such self-centeredness, die to such self-avenging tendencies. These will inherit the earth. I'm already feeling the weight after just these three. The kingdom citizen also hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Their most desperate endeavor is to know that they've truly been saved, that they've truly been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that their sins have truly been nailed to the cross and they bear them no no more. The great burden is assurance of our forgiveness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And out of that assurance, we strive to grow in righteous living, righteous in word, righteous in thought, righteous in deed. These, Jesus tells us, will be satisfied. Jesus continued teaching that the merciful will receive mercy. The merciful in this context are those who both withhold the execution of judgments against someone who offends them or harms them, but it goes further because that sounds a lot like meekness, right? Mercy, the quality of mercy, doesn't simply stop at refusing vengeance 
but instead fills that space by actively exercising compassion and sympathy towards your offender. It's not simply the staying of your hand when someone angers you, but the using of that hand in an active sense to care for and seek the best of those who do you wrong. Caring for them, addressing their needs, whether they are physical or spiritual. Jesus says, these will receive mercy. The kingdom citizen also evidences a purity of heart, meaning a full commitment to repentance, a full desire to turn from sin towards an undivided devotion to the Lord, obeying everything that Jesus commanded. There is no room, as Jesus has clearly declared throughout this sermon, there is no room for two masters. There is no room for the division of one's heart. No room for doing what many in our day try to do, to find a way to both serve the Lord and straddle that fence so that we can keep one foot or one eye focused on the Lord and one eye focused on the passions of this life, our desires, the desires of our flesh. No. Jesus made it clear in this sermon, the kingdom citizen leaves behind all sin. The kingdom citizen labors to stop. Imagine your heart as a series of pipes and channels. The kingdom citizen labors to stop up every pipe and every channel that leads any other direction than the Lord himself. Directing the, lab- the, the, the kingdom citizen labors to direct the full flow of their affections to God, to their proper end, which is God himself. This is our responsibility to the world too, isn't it? Jesus made this the great commission. Go into all the world and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Repent and believe the gospel with wholehearted allegiance and wholehearted dedication. These, Jesus says, shall see God. Kingdom citizens are peacemakers. Peacemakers. Those who actively discourage or actively disengage from the divisive tendencies of the world and instead actively engage in the difficult work of creating and establishing peace where there is conflict. I don't know if you... I am seeing these dangerous trends in the church today. We are called to be peacemakers and yet I see pastors and leaders in the church who are erecting walls of division rather than breaking them down. Jesus is the one who breaks down dividing walls of hostility. So beware of the number of preachers and teachers who are using their platforms to reestablish those walls, whether they are on the basis of your politics, whether they are on the basis of your skin color, whatever it is. We actively seek peace among one another as Jesus sought peace and secured peace with us. The peacemakers never add fuel to a fire, but instead are water that puts the fire out. Water that encourages beautiful flowers to grow up in the place of that fire. The peacemakers are those who engage in the hard labor of reconciling persons and reconciling factions that are at odds with each other. The peacemaker fights for peace in their own relationships. Never satisfied to simply sit back and allow division to reign in their life. The peacemaker, when necessary, also lays down their own ideas, lays down their own opinions, lays down their own supposed rights, when not explicitly biblical, when to do so would mean you sin against or are disobedient to God. You serve God first. But when you are not 
setting down something explicitly biblical or in setting those things down expressly disobeying the Lord, we will give up our ideas, we will set down our opinions, we will give up supposed rights in order to promote, establish, and create peace. And Jesus said, these will be called sons of God. And Jesus warned us of persecutions that would arise. The kingdom citizen will face persecution revilings, slanders, falsehoods, they will all come to the citizen of the kingdom on account of their king, King Jesus. And when we are persecuted, if it is indeed for the sake of righteousness and not for our own stupidity, if it is indeed for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the reason of our love and service to Jesus Christ, when you are persecuted for that reason, Jesus said, you are blessed. And far from getting all up in arms, Jesus told us, and here's the imperative, right? Listen, when we are feeling persecuted, here's what Jesus told us to do. Not to get up in arms. He said, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Because this is how the world has always treated God's children. If for Christ you face prison, if you are jeered or you're sneered or you're mistreated, rejoice! If your very life might be put in danger because of your service to Jesus Christ, rejoice! You are in good company. There is at this very moment a great cloud of witnesses that have endured the same treatment at the hands of the world as you because they loved God and they refused to compromise that love. Now, if you're anything like me, you're thinking to yourself, This is impossible. How do I do all of this? No one can live this out. Where does this leave me? When I hear this list and I compare myself to it, I can come out on top if I compare myself to other people. You can come out on top if you compare yourself to other people. But when you compare yourself against the standard of righteousness that Jesus is giving us here, where does it leave you? Probably in the same place it leaves me. I need help. I, need, I am desperately in need of something because I can't do this on my own. I fall way too short of the requirements and the standard that are set forth here. I mean, if you're one of the four disciples sitting at Jesus' feet listening, or if you're anyone in the crowd hearing this, you, they most likely thought the same thing. And here's the kicker. Jesus doesn't stop here. He keeps going and covers a number of other subjects in rapid-fire succession. He goes on and says, God's people live as salt and light in the world. We serve as a preservative as we pray for, exhort, and encourage, and call on lost sinners to repent of their sin and to look to Jesus for salvation. And in doing so, we serve and we function as a restraint, as a hindrance, as an impediment to the deterioration of the world we live in. What pressure! And we shine brightly as lights in the world as we obey the Lord, living obedient lives, showing the wonder, showing the delight of living in submission to the will and the ways of God. And as we do so, we influence and call people to the same joy. We live bright, loud, righteous lives so that people will see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And Jesus continues, 
If you're angry with your brother, a brother here being a fellow kingdom citizen, and you hold on to that anger, you stew in that anger, you let that anger affect and impact your relationship with that brother or, your, or that sister, you are in danger. Your soul is in danger. You are, according to Jesus, at this very moment liable to the hell of fire, he says. And you could just imagine sitting there in that crowd. People in the crowds are prop. There's probably a whole bunch of broken relationships in that crowd, probably a whole bunch of anger from people in that crowd. And you can just imagine them sitting there, kind of peering their eye over at the people they know they're mad at and the people that they know are angry with them. As the weight of this sermon just keeps piling on and piling on and piling on. Jesus goes on and says, If you even look at another person with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart with that person. While you go out into the world and they'll say things like, it's okay to look as long as you don't touch, Jesus gives us a much different reality. Looking with lust is a wicked sin against the Lord. Looking with lust is a wicked sin against the very person you're looking at. Looking with lust is a sin against your very own marriage bed. It's far better, Jesus said, to take whatever drastic measures need to be taken to avoid such a sinful deed. And then Jesus moves on out of that into the marriage and ensures that they, the people there know how strong the marriage bond is. Making, giving clear teaching on divorce, saying that divorce in all cases, except for marital unfaithfulness, sexual immorality, or as Paul will later note in 1 Corinthians 7, desertion by a non-believing spouse, all divorce outside of those two things constitutes a terrible, wicked sin. And to amplify the importance of entering into the marriage covenant and the marriage bond, and to amplify the need to fight for your marriage, to give it its proper gravity, Jesus taught that all remarriage while your spouse, your first spouse is alive, constitutes adultery. Jesus goes on and says the kingdom citizen is also to be completely truthful. Completely truthful. In all of our words and in all of our dealings to the point where our, simply our yes is an unbreakable contract. And our no means no. Furthermore, retaliation and revenge are out of the question We are never permitted to repay another person for evil for evil, ever. But instead are called to help and exhibit kindness. And even with those we might consider our enemies, we are commanded by Jesus to love them and to pray for them, even if, even when they persecute us. Our lives ought to be that radically different from the world's, especially in regard to those who we find hardest to love. And when it comes to our spiritual duties, our righteous deeds, Jesus refers to these three, giving, 
praying and fasting, the kingdom citizen makes sure not to practice these things so that other people will see them, so that our reputation in the eyes of other people is elevated and heightened, so that we are increasingly honored as people think, wow, look how spiritual that person is. No. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, when you perform any spiritual deed, do it in the sight of your heavenly Father. He's the only audience that counts. He's the only audience that truly matters. And let Him reward you. You're feeling the waves. Jesus doesn't stop. When it comes to earthly treasures... Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Keep your heart from hoarding treasures on earth because they're fleeting, they're temporary, and they're very easily stolen. And they quite easily divide our hearts, redirecting the flow of devotion from the one to whom all devotion ought to flow to the accumulation of and the protection of those earthly treasures. Now, we are to focus on storing up treasures in heaven, treasures that are stored up as we obey the Lord, as we love the Lord, serve the Lord, honor Him, and exalt Him in this life with a single, full-minded devotion. And when it comes to anxiety and worry, Jesus said, don't worry about anything at all. If you truly are God's child, if you truly are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, your Father in heaven has already committed to caring for you, to taking care of your physical needs. He didn't send His one and only Son to die on the cross, to take the wrath, to take His wrath for your sin on Himself so that you can be delivered from that sin simply to let you die hungry, thirsty, and naked. God didn't save Israel from the grip of Egypt with many wonders and mighty powers simply to leave them in the wilderness to die. And if God has given you Christ, if God has dealt with the burden and the penalties for your sin, how will he not give you everything you require along with it? So seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you. Food, drink, clothing, necessities. And as we noted last week, judge not. Kingdom citizens do not presume to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner over another's conscience. And even if one could justifiably take on such a role, they must first be even more ruthless, more harsh, and more merciless in rooting out and eliminating their own sin before thinking to do so for another. So just in summary form and in rapid-fire succession, crushing wave after crushing wave, I just repeated the teachings of Jesus to you on this day. Can you feel the weight of wave after wave after wave after wave? Can you imagine sitting in this crowd, hearing Jesus call out and rebuke every natural disposition of your heart? Can you imagine listening to Jesus refer to one area of failure in your life after another? And on top of that, hear him say in chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what hope does that leave any of us? 
It's one thing for Jesus to point to the common person, the you and the me, and say, you're not righteous enough. But in the mind of an Israelite in this day, for Jesus to pinpoint even the most meticulously religious and observant men in the nation, the religious leaders, the ones that everybody looked to and said, now that's a spiritual person, and say to them, even they don't measure up. These men who have dedicated their lives, every minute of their lives, to scrupulous, painstaking dedication and obedience, these men's lives don't measure up either. And Jesus looks at the crowds and says, your righteousness must even exceed theirs. What hope does that leave us? Who among you here this morning can say you've even come close to living up to such a standard? Who can honestly say here this morning, I've never entertained a lustful thought about anybody. I've never held on to anger with a brother or succumbed for a time to a divided heart as I've set it half of my heart on my treasures. Who can say that they've never retaliated against another person either actively or passively? Who can say that they honestly love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them all the time? Who can say they always mourn over their sin and never fall into the trap of trying to protect their sin? The answer to that question is none of us. No one. And therein lies the utter foolishness of believing, as many do, that you can win or secure God's love, His acceptance, or His affection by our good deeds, by your efforts to obey, by being a good person, as many like to say. The truth is, you can't. No one can. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's perfect standards in so many ways. As sin assails us from a number of fronts every minute of every day. And this sermon preached by Jesus weighed heavily on the souls of the disciples who sat in front of him and on the souls of the crowds and on hopefully your souls this morning. And in many ways, that's the point. Apart from God's help, apart from God saving us, apart from Christ coming and bearing all of this for us, we cannot earn, we cannot achieve, we cannot measure up to this righteous standard. The life that Jesus demands here in this sermon is impossible without help and support. It is beyond your power. It is beyond my power. We need the good things of our Heavenly Father. We desperately need His help if we are going to live up to His standard. And so, Jesus, in chapter 7, verse 7, speaks to the weight of inadequacy that is resting on our hearts, declaring the wonderful news that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are indeed one of His children, if you are indeed a citizen of the kingdom of God by grace, through faith, in believing in Jesus Christ, you have help. 
You have help at your disposal right now. Now, I don't know how much longer I have because the clock went out, so I'm just going to keep going for as long as I can. Oh, it's 12 o'clock. Are we done? Ha, ha, ha. 11.30. I'll, yeah, if we get close to 12, just someone be like, all right? Listen, if you've come to Jesus Christ in faith and in trust, I want you to know something. Your Heavenly Father loves you. And He loves to give good things to His children when they ask Him. And so, if you are struggling with sins this morning, if you are feeling the weight of your imperfection and your inadequacy, which is something we'll struggle with our entire life, listen to what Jesus says here. Ask. Ask. Diligently, uh, you know, run to the Lord in prayer. Dependent prayer. Ask. Seek. Diligently strive for ever-increasing knowledge of God's will so that you know what to pray for. Seek. Knock, consistently turn to the Lord for assistance and empowerment to live an obedient life. Knock. And these words, ask, seek, and knock, they're imperatives, they're meaning, meaning that Jesus is urging his children, urging his disciples to go to the Lord in prayer. This type of prayer in the life of a Christian is indispensable for those of us who would love and serve our Lord. So let's take a look at the imperatives that he gives, starting in verse 7. Ask. See that there? The first word, ask. Why do we ask people for things? We ask people, another person, for something because we need their help and or their assistance. Because we know that we require the help of the person that we are asking. Asking someone for something is a recognition that they either have something we can't fulfill on our own or they possess something that we don't. Something that we can't on our own accomplish. So we ask for help. That's what asking is. It's a recognition of our dependence. It's a recognition of the fact that we need help. That you need help. That I need help. And when you hear all that Jesus has taught in this sermon up to this point, and when you acknowledge your inability to live up to his perfect standard of holiness and righteousness, when you recognize your weakness when it comes to obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I, Jesus gives us the privilege of asking, approaching the Lord like a dependent child approaches their parent for help when they need help. But we don't simply ask once. This word ask here just doesn't, it doesn't just mean ask. It means ask and keep on asking. Because you need to keep asking the entirety of your life. You are always in need of this help. I am always in need of this help. So ask and keep asking. And this privilege of approaching the Lord in prayer for help in a time of need, guess what? This is one of the great privileges and blessings of following Jesus. And the call to ask, it's repeated, right? Quite often through Scripture. A couple of times in Matthew, for example, Jesus said in Matthew 18, if two of you agree on earth or about anything 
on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And in 22, verse 22, he says, Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And here in our text this morning, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you, for everyone who asks, receives. Now there will be some who will twist these words of Jesus to promote and teach some form of prosperity gospel garbage. But such misuse of this teaching only works when the texts are wrestled out of their original meaning. Because this comes out of Jesus's, or the, the, the imperative of Jesus to ask comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has just proclaimed to them, don't store up treasures for yourself in heaven. Because true disciples cannot serve two masters because two masters divide the heart. Jesus called on, Jesus called on his disciples to ask the Lord for help not to love money, not to love it, Scripture itself helps us to understand what Jesus meant in these texts when, where he exhorts his disciples to ask and it will be given uh, through other texts. So for example, James wrote this in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. He said, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The idea here is, so ask for wisdom. Ask how we are to live. Follow and obey the Lord during those tests of faith, and do so without doubting or being double-minded, like having your heart set on treasures on earth and and in heaven. Such a person must not suppose that they will receive anything because, as James clears up later in chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The asking that Jesus is referring to here in the Gospel of Matthew centers on the power that God gives us to live obediently as citizens of the kingdom, not and asking for earthly pleasures and treasures to spend on your own passions. And the Apostle John also wrote in 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So did you catch it? Said... If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and he answers. So then the question that arises is, well, what is this will? What is his will? Well, his will is our obedience to his word. And so when we ask for supply and strength to live according to his will, he generously opens the storehouses of grace and mercy and power in times of need. For this reason... The ever-present temptation to ask for wrong things in prayer, to ask the Lord to provide for our passions rather than our obedience, some have, for this reason, the Lord calls on us, our Lord Jesus Christ urges us to seek. It's the next word, you see that, right? Seek. Now some have taken this word seek to refer to a class of people. A class of people who don't quite know the Lord Jesus yet, but they're kind of looking for him and, and maybe they, they're, they're trying to figure out who he is and they want to come to him or something. 
And they create an entire church movement dedicated to this supposed class of not Christian but seeking him crew. The only problem is with this notion is that scripture clearly tells us in a number of places like Romans 3, no one, no one seeks for God. We only come to God because he first loves us. We only come to faith because the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We love the Lord only because he has turned our stubborn and rebellious hearts in his direction. There is no such thing as a seeker in the sense of, I'm looking for Jesus as he's revealed in scripture. That doesn't exist. Which is why even in churches that focus themselves on seekers, much of scripture is overlooked Because to preach on those texts would turn those seekers away. No, the seeker in question here is the one who's already given their hearts to Christ, who've already turned to Jesus in faith because the Spirit has given them a new heart and now they are seeking to know God more in order to obey Him and pray according to His will. To seek here means one recognizes that something they need is missing. For many, it is the knowledge of God's will. We seek because we don't know. We seek to know what we ought to desire. And that is God's will that we might keep on asking Him to accomplish that will in prayer. Now listen, good news and great blessing comes to those who truly seek to know the will of God. Great news for you because you can know the will of God. Because He's given it to us. It's right here. Everything the Lord wants us to know about righteousness, righteous living, prayer, His will, is here. And so the seeker is the one who takes up God's Word, who looks in God's Word, who searches the Scripture to grow in clarity. But a word of warning, when you take this this book up, you are taking up the words of God and you must ensure that you are honest when you take it up to read it, if you are truly seeking Him. Far too many of us look at God's Word, but we do so dishonestly. We have bosom sins, those sins that we love, those sins that we try to protect, and we go to God's Word and we either kind of gloss over those so that we can protect them, or we see Scripture clearly teach against the sin that we so love and we still try some way, somehow, to come up with some plan whereby God's judgment against that sin doesn't really apply to us because our circumstances are somehow different. No. When Scripture clearly teaches something, you hear it, you accept it, you obey it, you don't try to wiggle out from under it, you don't try to justify your disobedience, about how your, your circumstances is somehow okay, to seek means that you want to know, follow, and pray for the will of God with a full, devoted heart. And what does the Lord say? If you seek, you will find. The one who seeks, finds. So along with asking and seeking, Jesus urges us, thirdly, to knock. Not just knock once, Not just a little pitter-patter knock on the door, but knock and keep knocking. 
Knock here is to pray persistently and with perseverance. Knock until the door is open to you. Knock until the Lord supplies what is needed in your battle against sin and temptation. Knock until you get what you need to live and fight to live righteously. You see, if you're anything like me, when you have given in to sinful thoughts or sinful deeds or something like that, the enemy just comes right in at that moment, doesn't he? And he tries to keep your hand from forming a fist and knocking. He tries to batter that hand down so that you don't knock and instead you dwell and you mourn over how far short of God's perfections that you've fallen. You dwell in your own mind and you begin to torment your own you torment yourself with thoughts like I have failed the Lord again. I failed again, Lord. How can you really love someone like me who falls and who fails over and over and over again? Can you really love me, Lord? And the answer to the question in this text is yes. Yes, he does. And yes, he does. Don't let the enemy keep your hand from knocking. Knock persistently with perseverance on the door. And look what the text says. When you knock, it will be open to you. The door will be open to you. God will give you what you need to fight in your battles against sin. In those moments when your failure to live up to the righteous standard of, of God looms large in your mind, do not give Satan a foothold to bring you into despair. Get up and knock. Get up and keep knocking in prayer for the Lord's supply in the time of need. As we've learned throughout this, this Sermon on the Mount, the Lord has given us His children. The Lord has given us, all who believe, His very own Son. More than that, He delivered His very own Son up to death so that if we believe in Him, we will not perish but have everlasting life. How will He then, like we've mentioned earlier, who has already given us the greater gift, that is Jesus, not also along with us, provide us the spiritual strength to live for Jesus as we ask and as we seek and as we knock. Ask, seek, and knock. If you ask, it will be given. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open to you. And earlier in the sermon that Jesus taught the disciples that, is, that our Heavenly Father provides for the physical needs of His children. The earthly practical needs, right? Food, water, clothing. And now Jesus teaches us that not only does our Lord provide us with the, with the physical necessities we need to live here on earth, but he provides us with the spiritual necessities we need to fight for and live a life of righteousness. He is a good father. He loves to provide for his children. And that's what he says next in verse 9 and 10. Look at it. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, this is a generalized example. Such terrible and wicked types of parents no doubt exist, okay? But generally speaking, parents have a unique affection for their children. I've never witnessed the scenario that Jesus is mentioning here, that a child goes to their parents and says, I'm hungry, I need some bread. And the parent gives them some bread and says, eat that. Let that fill your tummy. I've never seen a parent whose child asks for a fish give that child a deadly, dangerous snake, something that kills the child. No, and if, 
even in this world of cold, heartless, cruel human beings, we know how to give good gifts to our children. The argument here is, how much more does the, our perfect Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to his children when they ask? Now, this does not mean that he always gives us what we ask for, but it does mean that he gives us He always gives us what is good. He always gives us what we need. No stones, no serpents, just bread and fish. God knows what is good for you, specifically you, in ways that no one else does. And so when we petition him, we petition him in the knowledge that he gives you good things. So ask, and it will be given to you. So again, just as a recap, ask is not referring to a one-time ask, but ask and keep asking. Ask, please, please, I need your help, Lord. I need your grace, Lord. I need your power to live this life, Lord. Seek. Seek and keep seeking. I need you, Lord, to help me to understand your will as I go to your word so that I know what to pray for. I know better what to ask for. I know better how to obey you. And knock and keep knocking persistently and in perseverance, praying for the storehouse of God's goodness to come to you. And know this. This is not some call to weary the Lord with your persistent prayers, as though God is not inclined to give help and care for his children. When you hear that phrase, knock, that's not what's being presented here. Again, our Lord loves to help his children. And he always stands at the ready to provide the spiritual strength we need. And what is this that the Lord gives us? Look at it again, Matthew 7, verse 11. Good things, good things. If you look at Luke, who is re- when he recounts the very same teaching, he makes it a little more explicit, saying this, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Isn't that exactly what we need? Is there anything better than the Lord's giving us the Holy Spirit who cleanses us, purifies us, strengthens us for service and obedience, who lives in us, producing in us ever-increasing levels of holiness and imitation of Christ, who creates in us an ever-closer walk with Jesus? This is our great joy. This is your great joy, your great delight, the filling up of your soul with that which brings you the most satisfaction, God himself. And as the Lord gives you the strength to fight the battle against sin and to gain ever-increasing victory over your sin, guess what? Your joy only increases. Sin does nothing but rob us of joy, but the Lord gives us good things. Obedience to him, righteousness, all of these add to your joy. So when you ask, seek, and knock, hear the promises of God's word to you as you do so. Psalm 84.11, we read at the beginning, said this, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Romans chapter 8, the mountaintop of that letter says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He, did, he who did not with spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us graciously give, with him graciously give us all things? James said, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Knowing all of this, then in verse 12, Jesus summed up the sermon up to this point. Or he gives a postscript, postscript, an application to us. In light of our imperfections, in light of all that God has done for us, in light of how God cares for our needs spiritually and physically, for those of us who are so undeserving of such care, our response to that ought to be then that we love and care for other people in the most wonderful and the most selfless of ways. And there's where you get verse 12. I'm going to keep it short, don't worry. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Treat others with the same generosity exhibited to you by your heavenly Father. And the others here in this text, in question, it's, it's the, the word for general humanity. It's not the word specifically for brothers or sisters, but general humanity, meaning everyone you encounter in life. In many cases, Scripture speaks about how we are to treat each other, but this one is far more generalized. Do to other people what you would have them do to you. So ask yourself, what is it I enjoy? What is it that angers me? Seek the best for your neighbor. Ask and pray for them and knock on the Lord's door and petition for them. So in closing, I know the difficulties. I feel them. I walk with them with you. I know the difficulties of trying to live righteously and trying to live obediently. I am also, along with you, engaged in a constant war between my renewed soul and my unrenewed flesh. I'm constantly in the battle along with you that Satan consistently tries to take my eyes off of him, off of the Lord Jesus Christ, and point them on lesser things. And my only recourse is the same as yours, asking, seeking, knocking, And so doing, in so doing, the Lord provides the power and the strength to fight those battles. The Lord reveals to me that the promises of sin and Satan are nothing more than a mirage or a lie when I read his word. And so as you engage in the battle, as you fight this battle, every minute of every day of your own life, I want you to know this, and if you take anything away from it, I want you to know this. Your heavenly Father loves you. And he loves to give you good things. He loves to provide you with the strength to fight for his glory, to fight for your joy, and to fight for righteousness in your life. If you ask, it will be given to you. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock, the door will be opened to you. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We love you. We honor you and we glorify you. And as we sit and see the forest that is the Sermon on the Mount and we feel the relentless waves 
hit our soul that revealed to us our inability to come close to living up to your standard. We thank you that you are a God who nailed all of our sin to the cross with Jesus Christ. You are a God who clothes us in perfect righteousness that Jesus secured on our behalf. And you are a God who is with us every step of the way as we battle to live a life of righteousness in this world. Lord, we want to be people who reflect you to the world. We want to be people who are lights to the world. And so I pray that you would always remind us that we have the blessing of asking, of seeking, of knocking, and of your strength to help us in the battle. May we never get bogged down in despair, but always lift up our hands to knock. And we pray all of this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.